This is an ABC podcast. It's possible that while you're in lockdown, you're actually doing a bit more exercise than usual. After all, it's one of the very few legitimate reasons to leave home. Or conversely, does the disruption mean you're doing less and keen to get back to your usual exercise routine when things reopen? Either way, new forms of activity or coming back to it after a break can lead to exercise-related injury and pain. Unfair but true. And later, here on Sporty, the first of a series about the injuries you can get trying to get fit and what to do about it. Hello, Amanda Smith here, starting though with disruptions of Olympic proportions. The latest question mark hanging over the Tokyo Olympics is what happens if the coronavirus pandemic isn't under control by next year? In other words, is a 12-month postponement enough time for the Games to be held safely? Well, if not, there can be no further postponement. The Games will be cancelled. That's according to the president of the Tokyo Organising Committee, Yoshiro Mori. The Olympic Games, I think it's fair to say, have almost never been uncontroversial or purely and simply a sports event. Disruption has often been the name of the game. And to reflect on some of the disruptions in this current context is sports historian Matthew Klugman. Matthew, we're going to talk about boycotts, cancellations, protests, terrorism. First of all, though, why have the Olympic Games, the Summer Olympic Games, been the site of any of this stuff at all? You know, when the ideal they were established on back in 1896 is the opposite. It's about peace and unity. Yeah, the modern Olympics kind of stumble along for a little while and then they start to capture public imagination. They become this kind of extraordinary event with incredible meaning, global meaning, as well as national and local significance. And so because of that, they also become this site of all the international tensions. So yeah, set up for peace in some ways uh, and then a site of yeah, disruptions or the, the tensions between nations. But you can get a sense of how important they are by thinking about their role in Australian life. You know, Australia, since 1945, has gone to every US official US war in support of the United States of America. And yet, in 1980, when the United States of America asked Australia to boycott and not to go to Moscow, the Australian government said, Mm, yeah, nah, and went along anyway. So Australia defied the US in a matter of sport because the Games meant so much to Australia. The, the most shocking, horrible, vicious of of all the disruptions I want to talk to you about was Munich in 1972. 11 athletes, Israeli athletes, killed in the Olympic village by Palestinian terrorists. Looking back on that, I have to say I'm kind of gobsmacked that those games weren't then stopped. You know, the running and jumping and so on all carried on. How do you judge that decision? Yeah, it's a really difficult decision and lots of elements to it. But the head of the IOC at the time, Avery Brundage, had form in this. Because if you go back to the previous Olympics, the 1968 Games in Mexico, there was a horrendous massacre of 
protesters protesting against the government and they were massacred by army forces. This was some week, 10 days out yeah, before, days the, out before the game. And they and were protesting about the government, Mexican government spending money on the games rather than on social welfare. Yeah, exactly. And killed for it. And again, you know, you would think, well, of course the games wouldn't, you know, with the government killing members of its population that the games wouldn't go ahead but Brundage thought it was too important and, and he, the way he spins at that time is that the games are there to bring people together they're a place where they can speak to what a better world might become so then you know that sets I think the template that Brundage has for Munich that he wants the games to be able to bring people together after a massacre like that and you can understand I mean even uh, at this moment so many athletes have put an incredible amount of time into preparing for it. The disruption to a whole lot of people's lives is immense. But nevertheless, in, in light of such a tragic occurrence, it does seem bizarre that they went ahead. Well, the great hijacking of the Olympic Games also occurred in Germany, but much earlier in 1936 in Berlin, generally referred to as Hitler's Games. I don't think any other games has a person's name, so inextricably linked to it. That's the games really as a kind of vehicle, a very intentional vehicle of propaganda. Uh, but I, I think of them as Jesse Owens' games oh. because he becomes the dynamic star of those games. Jesse Owens being? Jesse Owens being the African-American sprinter who won a swag of gold medals. Um, and it's fascinating because not only did he confound Hitler's plans... Defy his plans for a, yeah. a pure white race. Yes, Aryan yes, race. so this kind of celebration of, of a form of white supremacy, uh, and Owens is the star. But if you go back and see that footage, you can hear the crowd chanting for him. So the, the German crowd is behind him, and they get caught up in his magnificent um, skill and athleticism. And so he really does become the hero of the games, you know, and then goes back to an America which is also deeply segregated. And the president famously does not invite him to the White House. Every other gold medalist goes to the White House, but not Jesse Owens. But coming back, I suppose, to my contention about them being Hitler's games, they were, I think, the first games that really used the event and sport as a kind of display of political power. Yeah, so the games really become this kind of national statement in 1936. All this choreography, you know, and um, the first games broadcast on TV uh, and very intentionally for a political regime, you know, and... Um, Sport had always been, modern sport had always been fused with the media. You see it in the way the Tour de France, for example, is created by a French newspaper. And even the, the tabloid is invented as a way of getting readership through sport. But with the 1936 games, you start seeing the power of TV as the next platform for sport and how political that can be. 
Well, I should just mention too that uh, the 1916 Olympic Games were due to be held in Berlin. Uh, They were cancelled because of the First World War. But the 1936 Games were the last Olympics to be held for 12 years. They were cancelled in 1940 and 1944 because of the Second World War. In 1948, the Games started up again, held in London, with some countries excluded, though, yeah? Yeah, this kind of punishment in terms of who was seen as responsible for the Second World War and and who was seen as a good citizen. So a symbol of something of the New World Order. So Germany and Japan are excluded, but Italy is not uh, having turned during the Second World War. So, yeah, it's, it's a strange moment where the Games are supposed to represent peace and goodwill, but this punitive aspect to them as well. And Japan, of course, was supposed to host the 1940 Games, uh, those cancelled Games, and then had to wait until 1964, what, until they'd atoned long enough? Yeah, I mean... The awarding of the Games has always been a strange business uh, modelled on the founding of the, the modern Olympics where Pierre de Coubertin, the Baron, gets rejected when he tries to found them and then he, he invites all these dignitaries to his country estate, wines and dines them and then they agree to set up the modern Olympics. And, and then you get this replicated where, you, you know, you need to be able to convince the, the powerful men, as a rule, wine and dine them and get them to select your city. And, uh, yeah, that doesn't happen for Japan for quite some time. Well, now, it was really Cold War politics that played out in in subsequent Olympic Games following the Second World War from, well, certainly from 1956 through to 1980, 1984. Let's talk about Melbourne 1956, the friendly Games, but... Yes, yes, the fear was within Melbourne that the citizens weren't going to be friendly enough and weren't going to be welcoming to the diversity of the world that was going to come onto the doorstep. So the Argus has this campaign to turn Melbourne into a friendly place so that the Games will be friendly. But, you know, on the eve of the the Games, you have the Soviets crush the Hungarian rebellion and that sets up a number of countries that boycott the Netherlands, Cambodia, Switzerland and Spain. Then China refuses to come because what becomes known as Taiwan is competing. And then you also have another event, the Suez Canal um, erupts and Egypt is invaded by Israel, the United Kingdom and France, leading Egypt, Lebanon and Iraq to also boycott. So it's the first games really shaped by a whole lot of boycotts like a reverse form of that punitive action uh, of London. Instead, it's nations deciding that they're not going to come along. Um, And then you get the very famous water polo match. This Uh, is the USSR and Hungary. And Hungary, interestingly, did attend, didn't boycott. Yes, Hungary attends. um, But yeah, you have this blood in the water match where the Soviets are losing and they go the tonk. Um, I think it's the captain of the Hungarian team leaves the pool bleeding. That game is called off and awarded to the Hungarians. We've talked about later boycotts, 1980 Moscow Olympics, where, as you've said, the US led more than 45 nations boycotting those games in protest of the um, Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. And then 
there's a sort of retaliation in 1984 in Los Angeles, yeah? So then the Eastern Bloc countries also decide that they will follow suit and they won't come. So, yeah, you have many of the Western countries boycotting in 1980 and then the East uh, doing the same in 1984. Within this period, there are also civil rights protests and boycotts. I mean, you talked a little bit about uh, the massacre in 1968 in Mexico City, but there was also at that Games, of course, the black power podium protests of Tommy Smith and and John Carlos. The famous choreographed black power salute where Smith and Carlos are sent home in disgrace, stripped of their medals, uh, and it kind (laughs) of... There's this... um, awful contrast between what the head of the IOC and Avery Brundage had been saying before where the game should go ahead because they were a political thing that could show people a better life and yet Smith and Carlos who are protesting for better conditions not only in the US but throughout the world and in Africa in particular so protesting for the Olympics to be a site to lead to a better world and yet they're seen as undermining the Olympic spirit and yeah suffer greatly for it. So the games have this strange relationship to politics. You know, they claim to be apolitical at the same time as having this explicit agenda of peace. And then there, there's the questions of the politics they support, um, which they try and do implicitly. And then what is named as political that they will frown upon and and other sporting organisations following suit. Well, now in 1976... A whole bunch of countries boycotted those games in Montreal because of the usually deeply uncontroversial country of New Zealand. You know, and here we see another element of racial politics because sport had become seen as one of the key ways of trying to get South Africa to move away from their apartheid system. The New Zealand rugby team, in contravention to the UN, go and tour South Africa uh, and don't take along any of their Maori or Pacifica players. And so in response to that, a whole lot of African nations then, um, they want New Zealand to be excluded because South Africa was not able to attend the 1976 games. Uh, But New Zealand was, despite having sent a sporting team to South Africa. So with New Zealand being allowed to go there, those nations then boycott. The things that have disrupted the Olympic Games, as we've been talking about, have been wars, boycotts, protests, terrorism, uh, and now an entirely different threat, a virus. Yeah, you know, they consider themselves too big to be stopped. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that terrorism, protests, massacres didn't stop the game. No. And uh, and this has... There was, of course, a harbinger of it in 2016. The the Zika virus looked like it might disrupt the, the Rio Olympics, but mm. didn't. What next? The mind boggles, doesn't it? You know, if, if they were held in Australia, you could imagine that bushfires could be something and, and climate change more generally is a possibility. Uh, with Japan, there were some fears around, you know, what has happened previously in terms of their nuclear accidents um, and the way climate change could be impacted in that. And then, you know, you go from the, the plausible to the more fanciful, you know, asteroid strikes or, you know, what, what next? <laughs> well, we'll see. 
And Dr Matthew Klugman is a research fellow at the Institute for Health and Sport at Victoria University. Many thanks, Matthew, for joining us here on Sporty. Thank you very much. And it's Amanda Smith with you. So you might be using this time to be a bit more active. Exercise is one of the few reasons you can get out and about right now. And maybe it'll be something to continue when fitness centres and pools and gyms reopen. But is the new soreness you're feeling something to be expected or have you injured yourself? How do you know the difference? This is part one of a series about exercise and injuries. Lie flat on your back. Swing the legs over the head, touching the floor with the toes. Ready? Begin. One. You know, you start with heaps of enthusiasm and determination. All the way back now. Touch the floor with the toes, that's right. All the way back. But then... All the messages are be active, you've got to exercise. So you do. Then an unexpected setback, somewhere it hurts. Uh-oh, is it serious? This wasn't in the get fit plan. Well, um, firstly, I'm the least sporty person out there, one of, but here it is. It did happen in the gym. I had just started at a new gym and they'd given me a program. One part of it was this thing lifting weights, like two dumbbells, but with a machine. And I I didn't really realise till later that this was what caused it. But when I did it that day, I felt like sort of, oh, in my hip, and then the next day, every time I got up, I sort of just felt myself bringing my hand to my hip, like, ah, oh, there's something with my hip. And then it just persisted and it was sort of like six months in that I thought, I have to get it checked out. Well, at first, I mean, you always get trauma-type injuries in footy, bruises and that sort of thing, but nothing really serious. But then I remember I was just training at night, sprinting, and bang, my hammy went. That was the start of it, and by the time I'd finished, I'd done the other hammy as well, plus groin strain, so really soft tissue injuries put an end to my football playing. I had a skiing accident. I fell and was forced to bend my knee in a particular way, and I saw a doctor who said sent me off for an x-ray and some ultrasound and said, do you believe in physio? I don't believe in physio. I don't think you need physio, as though physio was some kind of religion. He said, keep riding your bike. And eventually I decided that I might subscribe to the religion of physio and went off to see a physio who, after a couple of visits when it wasn't getting any better, suggested that I get an MRI and then it was clear that I'd torn my MCL, one of my ligaments. I went off to see a surgeon at that point. Another GP said, go and see a surgeon. Although the physio tells me that you can't fix this injury with surgery. Uh, Having said that, he expected me to get better in two weeks and it's six weeks later and I'm still not better. Very confusing. I... I did always been quite flexible and I did a lot of stretches and I was puzzled as to why I kept 
getting these repetitive, you know, soft tissue injuries. And it's only subsequently that I learned that when you do an injury like that, what you really need to do is build up the muscle around the scar tissue. Nobody told me that. So I didn't do it. And unsurprisingly, the injuries recurred. I'm someone who always thinks, look, you know, you go to see the right doctor and they can give you some sort of cure and I'll be fixed. This is like what I believe is meant to happen. But then the fact that it sounds like you actually have to keep doing this rehab, which is quite vague. It's not specific. And I think that's really hard to understand if you're someone who wants just a quick fix, this injection or this tablet or whatever. It still hurts basically the same as it had soon after I'd done the injury. I am kind of desperate to ski again, but not as desperate as I am to ride. I look at all these, you know, old people on bicycles and I think, how come I can't do that and they can? So it just seems really bizarre to me that doctors can, you know, transplant a heart and do all these amazing things and they don't have a way to fix my bung hip. And that just seems, that just doesn't make sense to me. This is the Olympic Park Sports Medicine Centre in Melbourne. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith. I'm here to see Dr Jowett. Andrew Jowett is the clinic director here and he's the chairman of Sports Medicine Australia. Andrew. Andrew Jowett. Hello. Good to meet you. Despite all his qualifications and experience, Andrew Jowett admits that there are things to do with exercise and injury that are a mystery. Oh, there's an enormous mystery. And I guess the easiest way to explain that is most patients present to me with pain. They don't present to me with a torn tendon or something. They present me with shoulder pain. And the problem is pain doesn't always have a diagnosis. We talk about nociception as the perception of pain coming from a tissue. That's a message coming up a nerve and that's one part of pain, but pain's a whole experience. So the mystery of pain is one of the really big challenges. Things like back pain, there's so many components to the pain. So we see scans of backs and necks, and, and we know that a normal population out in our waiting room without pain will have abnormalities on scan. So yeah, that, they're, the, they're the mysteries we're sort of delving into at the moment. So this ball's four kilos. It's like a dead ball. Yep. So when you slam it, does it bounce? Yeah. At the gym she runs, Misha Mertz is doing a one-on-one -on -one fitness session with one of her regulars. <laughs> Normally, Sheree warms up on the rower and the bike. She used to skip, but she stopped skipping now. Why did you stop skipping? I stopped skipping because of my neck. I've got a problem on the left side of my neck, and the doctor told me not to skip. <laughs> so I don't skip. <laughs> She was a great skipper, so it's a terrible loss no, to skipping. I did, I did childhood skipping. It was terrible. Misha's own terrible. sport is boxing. Misha, what about your injuries? I haven't had anything very dramatic. They've usually been very temporary injuries. I have had a chronic shoulder injury. I guess that's the one that's bothered me the most. Others have just been turned ankles, tendonitis in my Achilles tendons. And I guess anyone who runs a lot eventually comes up against that. Um, you know, slightly injured back from deadlifts. The shoulder is probably the one that bothered me the most because it actually affected the way I boxed. You know, you need both hands, really. 
but it never, ever stopped me. I fought with it torn, you know, it hasn't repaired. So I've still been able to compete, yeah. Do you think people who are less used to exercise are also less stoical around injuries? Oh, definitely. There's a mindset with people who push through in sort of pain and work around injuries, and they're usually people who have a background in a sport or in something like ballet where pain is part of the process. So, you know, you just don't stop because you're uncomfortable or in pain. And then there's a whole group of people who may have taken up exercise later in life and find the pain and the discomfort sort of enough to stop them or deter them, and they just won't push past it. And not being able to push past it is really unfortunate because often that's when you develop gains in fitness and strength is if you just persist and push past that period of discomfort you actually break through to the other side yeah you know you're talking about pushing through a bit but I would have a fear too that I'm just going to make something worse and worse well I guess something can get worse I think if you're a bit more familiar with your body you can understand what kind of pain is is not a good one to push past and what is right to your neck now soften your knees, push it over your head. Lock it out over your head. Now bring it back to your neck. How's the weights? Yeah, so as it started to get heavier, you're locking your knees yeah. and it's all coming into your lower back. Yeah, too heavy? Uh, no, I'm just weak. <laughs> Jared Boyle yeah. is a personal trainer who's had plenty of experience of exercise-induced pain. I broke my left femur in a mountain biking accident 15 years ago. I hit a tree and the and my femur bone, which is the bone from a knee to my hip, snapped in half. So there was like a shrieking through my nervous system. This was a very different pain. So if you run, I mean, I run with a heart rate monitor. And once, you, once you're looking at 90, 95% of your maximum heart rate, you think you're about to start astral traveling. You expect to see angels and it's very painful. But it's, it's a good pain. That breakage pain is something else again. So pain is not always an indication of significant damage. I mean, you know that. If you stub your toe when it's cold, it hurts like hell. You know, sometimes more than getting one of your ribs cracked. And there's good pain and bad pain. I think so. Oh, very significantly. I mean, anyone who's experienced a muscle burn from repeat contractions or from cycling would agree but, you know, people talk about pain thresholds and things like that. I think a lot of that has to do with your attitude to the pain and how you feel about it. I mean, some people feel violated by pain. And I think that is a big mistake. Now, alternate, sprint, hard as you can, go, quick as you can, small, small. Actually, injury is even more fundamental to exercise than you might think. Fast, come on. I mean, by definition, if you are training your muscles, you're breaking them down and they become bigger and stronger as your body puts back to repair them. So that is damage and you'll experience pain in the process of that. Relax. Good pain to me reflects positive changes in your body and part of the adaptation of the body to an activity or to a load. And what we know about muscle adaptation to those loads is that when you put it under load and under stress, you actually cause microscopic injuries to the muscle. That injury stimulates healing and hopefully replication of muscle fibres and ultimately strengthening. 
So that's the good sort of pain we're after out of any workout to prevent injuries or to improve our performance. So you have to injure a muscle to improve it? Yeah, but at a microscopic level, we want to cause some sort of injury. The other thing is you have to give it time to improve. So backing up a load straight afterwards or the next day, you might go down the slope and cause further damage that you don't improve from. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of demand that people push past the pain. Just I might ask them what kind of pain they're feeling. And, uh, and make an assessment at that point. But even then, you know, it's really like it's not a boot camp or it's not, it's not the army. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't push through it, you're not going to get discharged dishonourably. You're just going to sit it out, you know, and that's just the way it is, yeah. In the next episode of this series about exercise and injuries, what are the questions you should know to ask when you go to see some kind of therapist for an exercise-related injury? And what does warming up and stretching do to help prevent or manage injuries. Please, please, a little more balance. Come, come now. Upsy-daisy. Thank you, Professor. I'm terribly sorry, but I got a cramp in my limb. Oh, too bad. And you were doing so nicely, too. Well, courage, courage. Sporty is produced by Damien Rabbit. I'm Amanda Smith. And thanks to all of you who entered our Inventor Sport competition such imaginations you have. The winner will be announced here on Sporty in two weeks' time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.